0: The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the Psalms. Psalm 119, beginning at verse 97. We'll be reading through verse 104 this morning. The word of the Lord. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 51. We will simply be reading verses 51 and 52 this morning. You'll recall, if you've been with us, Jesus has just finished teaching a series of parables that explain to us the mysteries of the kingdom of of God. You know, some of those mysteries that would have been for the uh, earliest disciples that the kingdom of God just doesn't burst on the scenes with obvious success. We have, for example, the parable of the sower where uh, the seeds would fall on different types of soil and some of it um, would not produce any fruit at all while others would produce a great harvest. Jesus is very concerned that the disciples would grasp these parables and apply them in his, their own lives. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 51, the word of our God. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. Who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old? Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please keep your place here. Is this to be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon? Whose responsibility is it to hand on the Christian faith to the next generation? Go ahead and think about that a bit. Whose responsibility is it to hand on the Christian faith to the next generation? Do you have your answer in mind? Well, the biblical answer is actually a bit complicated. On the one hand, this is clearly a responsibility that is given in a particular way to the ministers and the elders of the church. Consider these words from the Apostle Paul to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. Paul writes, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, the Apostle Paul has a very long-term view for handing on orthodoxy as the kingdom of God grows. He he, he says, Timothy, I've handed these truths on to you. You need to identify and raise up other faithful men that you will hand it on to them, who will in turn keep the cycle going. So in a very clear way, elders and ministers enter into this responsibility and we have a particular calling before God to make sure that the Christian faith in its totality is handed on to the next generation as well as training the one that we're in. Nevertheless, uh, that's not the end of the story. Quite clearly, throughout the Bible, God instructs parents to hand on the faith to their children, to teach them the ways of God, to teach them God's word. For example... Um, the Lord commands in Deuteronomy chapter eleven: You shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you were sitting in your house, and when you were walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. Now one of the critical and beautiful things about that passage, about this instruction from the Lord, is that the faith that God gives to us is not simply passed on in those small moments when you're doing a Bible study or praying with your children, or by bringing them to church. Now by all means Christian parents need to bring their children to corporate worship. And we do need to spend time praying with them and reading the Bible with them. But actually the Christian faith permeates all of our life. And therefore the way that we're raising our children to know the ways of God, and to walk in those ways, and to keep that cycle going, is by every aspect of our life being a point of contact where we say and this is what God wants us to do here and if you considered the grace of God and yes you're dealing with the struggle with your friend who's been mean to you and unjust to you how do you respond to that in light of the fact that God has given you the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ has died for your sins that is parents teach their children the faith not just in a few isolated moments of their life but by living out their faith with their children. Without belaboring the point, I trust that you will recognize that this responsibility, while in a particular way is for parents, is not limited to parents with their own children. The Great Commission, after all, was given to the church as a whole. We are all responsible for discipling the nations, which starts with discipling those who are close to us. Uh, For this reason, Whenever a person is received into membership in this church, the minister declares, say it's Bob, as Bob is received into full communion in this church, the whole congregation is obligated to receive him, for in Christ we are members of one another. Christ claims this brother is his own and calls you to serve him in love. Therefore, you ought to commit yourself before God to assist Bob in his Christian nurture by godly example, prayer, and encouragement in our most precious faith and in the fellowship of believers. See, we're members of one another, and we're all part of the priesthood of all believers. Therefore, we are all responsible to build each other up in the faith and to hand it on to the next generation. Uh, This morning, Jesus tells us some important things about how we are to do this. We're going to look at this morning's passage under four main headings. First, where do we begin? Second, priceless treasure. Third, unchanging truths. And fourth, new wineskins. Let me give those four to you again. First, where should we start? Second, priceless treasure. Third, unchanging truths. And fourth, new wineskins. Now, if you simply step back and think about passing on the treasures of the Christian faith to the next generation, the task can seem so overwhelming that we get paralyzed and we end up doing nothing. So the question we have to begin with is, where should we start? And once I give you the answer, it'll be obvious. The place we need to start is with ourselves. That is, as we go out in the Great Commission to make disciples, the very first person we need to disciple is ourselves. Jesus asks, Have you understood all of these things? Now, Jesus is about to talk to his disciples as being scribes of the kingdom. Uh, In particular... Scribes who have been trained for the sake of building up the kingdom. But that begs the question, what are scribes called to do? Well, scribes are called to accurately and carefully preserve the faith, preserve the word of God. They're called to train their own generation in this, and they're called to pass it on to the next generation. And Jesus says, the first thing we have to consider is, do you understand these things? Because you can't pass on the Christian faith if you don't have it yourself. If you don't possess it, if you're not growing in it, if you're not living it out in your own lives. The only way we can pass on the Christian faith to our own generation and the next is if we possess and understand God's revelation ourselves. Now thankfully in this church, this is a church that you take the word of God with great seriousness. So Most of you regularly read God's Word. You pay attention in corporate worship. Uh, Some of you read um, a number of theology books, and you study, and you listen to sermons and podcasts and lectures and all those sorts of things. So in some ways, we're already off to a really good start, and yet we have a problem, or uh, at least a challenge. And it's a challenge that we all face. It's not a shortcoming of ourselves. It's a challenge we face because of the culture we live in. We live in an entertainment culture, right? America, to a very remarkable degree, uh, is a culture that is uh, marked out by people watching television and movies and various ways that people want to entertain you to take your money from you, among other things. And um, I'm not saying entertainment's all bad, but there's a problem with entertainment. It changes the way that we learn. Um, If you're watching a, a football game, or you're watching a movie, or you're watching a sitcom on television, it demands almost nothing of you. Right? You can do that passively. If uh, you're sitting there and your mind wanders for ten minutes and you don't pay any attention at all, but you're kind of enjoying yourself, it's just fine. I mean, nobody's going to give you a quiz at the end of the show. And what that actually does is it conditions us to not be active learners, to be passive and just let things sort of wash over us. And then we come to a a lecture, or we go in in terms of reading, or we come to a sermon in church, and we can actually enter in with that same way. You know, there's a saying that goes, we program our devices, and then our devices program us. And all this screen time that we have, and all this entertainment in our culture, can lead us to coming to church and being very passive. I sat there, I enjoyed it, it was fine. But actually, if we do that, we're going to miss out on a huge amount of what we would learn if we were active and engaged and thinking, how does this apply to me? Is this really based on God's word? Right? So we have to be intentional about being active listeners and active learners when we're reading God's word. Uh, to make matters worse, uh, most of us have smartphones or tablets. I say worse, but actually they're amazing devices. They do wonderful things for us. I'm not saying you should throw out your smartphone. Um, And the good news for us is we do not have to become like the Amish or become Luddites in order to learn better in general or to learn better about the things of God. But what we do need to do is be intentional. We have to recognize that we could easily drift into this rather passive way of doing things. Lots of studies have shown that because of these changes in our culture over the last 20 years, people don't read as well. Because social media and and all this data coming into us has led us to learn just to skim over things. But you don't want to skim over God's word and not grasp the meat of it for yourself. And you don't want to do that when you're listening to sermons either. So the good news is we don't have to live like the Amish in order to significantly improve our ability to learn in general and to learn the things of God in particular. What we do need to do is to be intentional. Uh, Long before the internet and smartphones were invented, J.C. Ryle wrote, Let us watch our souls in this matter. Let us take with us to church not only our bodies, but our minds, our reason, our hearts, and our consciences. Let us often ask ourselves, What have I gained from this sermon? What have I learned? What truths have been impressed on my mind? Intellect, no doubt, is not everything in religion, but it does not therefore follow that it is nothing at all. The heart is unquestionably the main point, but we must never forget that the Holy Ghost generally reaches the heart through the mind. That's an important truth to remind ourselves of because sometimes we have a romantic tendency in our culture to think all that matters is how you feel. But actually the way God grips our hearts is by enlightening our minds with the truths about who he is and what he has done. And for that, we actually need to learn. Now, I'm not going to ask you whether or not you're doing this. That's actually not a very helpful question right? about how active you are in your learning. What I'm going to ask you to consider is, how could you do it better? doesn't matter where you are. All of us could be better about how we learn the things of God, being intentional about it. And I'm going to give you a handful of very simple things to consider. They're just illustrations. They'll be different ones in your own life. Uh, I, I do want to say that they're all simple and short. and That's actually Intentional. A grand plan for mastering God's word is of very little value because you're not going to do it. But actually making small, simple steps that you do on a regular basis, you'll be amazed at how much you can learn over the coming year. So let me give you five very simple examples of the type of things that could be helpful for many people related to morning worship and also to Sunday school. First, read and think about the passages in the week before you come here. Uh, We put them out on the worship guide. You know what we're going to look at the Sunday morning. And the simple matter is, is if you come to morning worship and the first time you encounter the passage is when Pastor Woods or I read it, you're going to get far less out of it than if you've read it in advance, thought about it in advance, and actually are coming with questions. Because if you have questions or you have ideas then you're going to interact on a much deeper level. Second, get to bed at a reasonable hour on Saturday night. Um, That's actually really simple, but it's easy for us to ignore. But if we wake up on Sunday morning and we're tired or exhausted, we're not going to get as much out of corporate worship. We're not going to give as much to our brothers and sisters in Christ either. Third, as an active listener... Keep an inner dialogue going. Right, if you just sit there and, and, and let the words wash over you, your, your mind's going to drift. But as an active listener, you can do things like um, ask just really obvious questions. Do I understand this? Is what the pastor's saying grounded in the text? Because right, you want to ground your faith in the word of God, not in what some minister says. Um, how does this apply to me? How does this apply in our family life, in my business life, and so on? If you're just asking those questions throughout a sermon, you're going to get vastly more out of it. Fourth, ask questions. Um, One of the most dangerous things for people as theologians is when they move from being really excited about learning to thinking they're supposed to already know everything. Because then they stop asking questions and they stop learning. Uh, what you want to be able to do is talk with each other. After a service, hey, I, I was confused what Pastor Booth was talking about today. Did you get that point? And, of course, you can ask Pastor Woods or myself. Uh, you may have difficulty grabbing us right after worship, right? But you send us an email. We will write you back. We will call you. We, we love to talk with you about God's word. And it's a very simple thing to do. I didn't understand something. Let me ask someone. And fifth, and this applies to Sunday school, one of the time-tested ways of passing on the faith to the next generation is through catechisms. Catechisms provide a well-balanced, concise, and accurate treatment of the main points of the Christian faith. And right now, Pastor Woods is teaching the Heidelberg Catechism in adult Sunday school class. And, and this is actually on our worship guide in the, the week before. And again, be active with it. And it's not that hard. You do not have to go and read the Heidelberg Catechism in German and Latin in order to get this. As you read the catechism questions, just ask these questions. Do I understand what he's talking about? Do I see how it's grounded in Scripture? Right? You don't want to ground your faith in the church, even something that's so well done. Is this what the Bible teaches? Now, it is. But you need to see that for yourself. And thankfully, you can look at the catechism, there's going to be proof text with it. And there'll be a lot more that can be said. Is this what God says? And what difference does it make in my life? And, And actually, for most of you, a very helpful thing is to take one more step and ask this question. I now have this truth. How would I explain it to someone else? To my wife, my children, my friends. And by the way, you can go ahead and do that, right? Just, you look into the catechism, you got a truth, you're talking to one of your children, you're talking to a friend of yours, and say, hey, you know, I was just reading this thing. I just want to share this one thing with you. And it shouldn't be that complicated, because the catechisms are designed to be concise and clear. right? That, that's all you really need to do. You don't need to go to seminary. You, you don't need to master Greek and Hebrew. That's important for pastors, but it's really not important for you. And if you simply take these steps, you'll learn a great deal more. Than if you simply allow sermons and Sunday school and so on to wash over you week after week. See, Jesus was not content simply to teach in front of his disciples. He stops to make sure that they are actually learning. And so he asks them, Have you understood these things? And they say to him, Yes. And I think we want to smile. Maybe laugh a bit because we know how much the disciples don't grasp everything Jesus is teaching us. In fact, we know that because the disciples tell us that in the gospel accounts, right? So we know how much they don't grasp. Nevertheless, I think they're totally sincere. Um, the, The thing about learning is you do not have to master everything to have learned something. And they're saying we've listened to these parables and we basically get what you have been teaching us. Right. The disciples are simply and sincerely affirming that they have followed what Jesus is trying to teach them. Verse 52. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So while the disciples affirm they understand what Jesus has been teaching, Jesus wants them to understand something else about the content of his teaching, and that's that it's a treasure. He actually makes a pretty significant shift here, right, from being a scribe to being the master of a house who has a treasure out of which they can bring gifts to other people. Jesus is telling us that the word of God, that's what's in focus here, the Old Covenant and the teaching that he's now bringing them to them in a fresh way. Understanding the things of God is a priceless treasure that they are called to share with others. Please think about this in your own life. The Lord is putting resources at your disposal so that you can bless other people with them. And what is this treasure? Well, quite clearly in the context, it's the Word of God and understanding the word of God. As the psalmist put it in our Old Covenant reading this morning, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than the honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore I hate every false way. So ask yourself this question. How valuable is the word of God to me? You know, people spend a lot of money to go to a really good college to get four years of education. That can be a really great value in their life. You know, learning a lot, becoming somewhat of an expert on a subject like biology is good. right? As Christians, we're not going, that's bad. right? You don't want to do that. You just want to spend all your time in the Bible. That's a good thing to do. It's valuable. But what good does it do you to become an expert in biology, famous throughout the world, and to miss God, to not know who God is and what God wants out of your life. Furthermore, the word of God is incredibly practical. The psalmist confesses that meditating upon the word of God has made him wiser than his teachers and with more understanding than many who are far older than he is. Young people, you're in a tough place in life, actually. You, you now have to make all sorts of important decisions about friendship, about college, careers, about how to handle money, about how to deal with people who are dishonest toward you, all sorts of things. About temptations in life, you have to make those decisions when you're not yet ready to do so. By the way, it's not just you. I, I want to say the young people in this church are way ahead of where I was when I was your age. It's not just you. None of us when we're at that point in life, when we're in our later teen years, right, we don't have the wisdom we need to make those decisions on our own. You know, God understands that. Not only does God understand that, God has done something about it. He's given you a book, the Book of Proverbs. The Book of Proverbs is specifically written for people making that transition from their teen years into adulthood. It's good for us older folk too, but it's specifically written for that age so that you'll have God's wisdom. And how to deal with those decisions. Think about how valuable that is to you. The mistakes that you can avoid making and the wise choices you can make simply because God is giving you the treasure of his own word. Now the challenge for us is God has made this treasure so readily available to us we can take it for granted. Think about this. If God only spoke to us once a year, some retreat in the White Mountains. It's the only time you can have God's word. We'd all go. We'd all go and we would be focused. We'd want to get everything out of it because God is speaking. But what God has done is he has lavished his grace on us so that we all have Bibles in our own language. Not only do we have Bibles in our own language, we can can dial it up on the internet so we can listen to it. We can listen to sermons. We have preachers and teachers and resources. And the very extraordinary nature of God's grace in making his word so available to us can lead us to thinking it's not that special. But beloved, it is more valuable than gold or rubies. Through God's word, you come to understand who God is, what he has done in Jesus Christ. You you come to a knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of your sins, and you come to understand how you can live in a way that glorifies and enjoys him forever. And here's one of the great things about this treasure. Giving it away does not diminish what you have left. See, see, Jesus says that the person who's storing up this knowledge as a scribe is actually as a treasure to give to other people. You know, when you give away your money, you have less. When you give away knowledge of God, you actually end up having more. As you share the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he's done with other people, you will come to understand him more fully. This is a treasure where giving it away does not diminish what you have, it rather increases it. Then Jesus adds something that might have taken his disciples a fair amount of time. I I suspect even a fair amount of time after Pentecost, as I read the New Testament epistles, to fully work out. Jesus says, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Well, what's new and what's old? Let's start with what's old. What has Jesus been doing through his teaching and preaching ministry? It's probably not a question you would ask yourself to say Jesus is God, he teaches the truth. But, but think about how he's teaching the truth. He's actually doing two things. First, he's teaching the Old Testament, and he's stripping away the misunderstandings of the Old Testament that had crept into Judaism. Uh, we see that all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. That's why every time you hear the Sermon on the Mount Jesus saying, you have heard it said, what he's talking about there is the misunderstandings the oral law of the rabbis that was trying to apply the Old Testament, and Jesus is actually pointing out those areas that need correcting. And Jesus is saying, that's not what the Old Testament taught. I say to you, I'm giving you the authoritative interpretation as God come in the flesh. So Jesus is teaching the Old Testament, but Jesus, of course, is also teaching things that are new. Right? Jesus is opening his mouth and revealing mysteries that have been hitting since the foundation of the world He's doing both, and he's saying the scribe that's trained in the kingdom, that's us as disciples, were to do both as well. It's vital for us to grasp that this fresh revelation from Jesus does not do away with prior revelation. Um, In some ways, you would think that's as obvious as you read the New Testament. Right. I, it's hard to see how people miss this. But actually, throughout church history, um, this has been a common heresy. In the early church, uh, a heretic by the name of Martian wanted to get rid of the Old Testament and to do with Christians. Showed up again in the time of the Reformation. It has shown up again in our own day. Uh, Andy Stanley, the, the son of Charles Stanley, a very famous preacher. Actually, Andy Stanley is pretty famous in his own right. Has tried to do this very thing. He talks about untethering the Christian faith from the Old Testament. That's a heresy, because it's God's word. What do you mean, untether the church from the word of the living God? But I want to suggest that while we can point at those who who are engaged in this as a heresy, as a practical matter, it's an easy thing for Christians to do. The New Testament is more accessible to us, and, and so we can actually ignore the Old Testament while asserting that it's the authoritative word of God. And Jesus is saying, no, I actually want you to understand it. I want you to apprehend what God is showing you in there for your own life and also for the sake of those around you. Well, as I say, I I think it's vital to grasp that Jesus is absolutely clear that the New Testament does not abolish the Old. Um, Think of what he says very early on in the Sermon on the Mount. Right, Jesus says this about the Old Testament. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Um, I don't know how he could be more clear, right? I, until heaven and earth pass away. He's not just talking about something's going to take place in the next two, three years of his life. He's not saying until I rise from the dead. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a jot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Um, R.C. Sproul tells a story, because this has been a problem that happens throughout the church. It happened in his own ministry. Um, he was uh, lecturing in Scarsdale, New York, a very, very affluent town um, in southern New York. And uh, after the lecture, they went back to someone's home, this very nice, beautiful, large home. They went in the living room. They're going to pray. And someone turned the lights out. And they all started praying to their dead relatives. And and R.C. Sproul jumps up. He turns the light on. He stops. Hold on. What are you guys doing here? And he explains to them that God had forbid contacting the dead, right, praying to the dead in the Torah. In fact, He assigned the death penalty to it. It It's such a serious offense to God in terms of that type of false worship. You know what they said, of course. That's in the Old Testament. And R.C. had to point out to them what I want to point out to you. What is it that makes you think that that which God hated in the Old Testament, he's now pleased with in the New? Of course, it's not just about commandments, but this is an illustration of that. See, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, He does not change. And therefore, his word is true forever. That's what Isaiah tells us, right? um, All flesh is like grass. We're all going to fade away. Human institutions are all going to fade away. Yes, the United States of America, if the Lord tarries, will fade away. But the word of our God will endure forever. Beloved, the Old Testament is not God's word emeritus. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now when Paul writes that to the New Testament church... He primarily has the Old Testament in view. Yes, they are already writing New Testament scripture, right? So I'm not saying that's not in view, but he primarily has the Old Testament in view. And what he's saying is, the Old Testament is breathed out by God every jot and tittle, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that you might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It's God's gift to you. Now, if we're to be faithful and effective scribes of the kingdom, we need to learn to trust and obey the first three-quarters of our Bibles and not just those books that make up the New Testament. On the other hand, this is a challenge for us. Um, the Old Testament is longer. It's three-quarters of your Bible. It also is written against a historical backdrop that you're not immediately familiar with, and it can be confusing. Right? So you're going to have to do this over time. It's going to take effort. You're going to need to ask people like myself who can help teach you and explain things to you and Pastor Woods and resources like study Bibles and so on. It's not going to be easy. The good news is that means that you're going to be able to keep learning your entire life. You're not going to, like, read through the Bible two or three times and have everything mastered. You're going to grow in your knowledge of who God is and what he is calling us to do until the day our Lord calls us home. Nobody ever exhausts the treasure that is God's word. That said, Jesus is not simply a new Moses. Right? Jesus is not simply a new Moses who's correcting misunderstandings of the Old Testament so that we can all be more faithful Jews. Jesus is the goal of history. When Christ comes into the world, all of history moves on a hinge, And therefore, we cannot put new wine into old wineskins. We're going to live differently. We have greater privileges, greater joy, greater understanding. And the very fact that Christ has come casts the Old Testament in a new light for us. With the coming of Christ, all of history turns on a hinge. That means we not only have the extraordinary treasure of the New Testament, where we receive God's own explanation of who Jesus is and what he has done, the coming of Christ also casts a brilliant light over the old covenant. You can now read Genesis 22 with fresh insight. You know, um, Isaac was not saved because a goat was, was caught, I mean, a, a ram was caught uh, in, in the bushes by its horns. Right? We understand that it's Christ is the substitute. And you get that throughout the whole Old Testament as you see all the Old Testament and all of history points forward to who Jesus is and what he would do. You have the privilege of being able to understand the Old Testament in a way that Old Testament saints could never do because you have seen the Christ. As Peter would write in his first letter, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them Was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Do you hear what Peter's saying? We are far more privileged than even the Old Testament prophets were who had received direct revelation from God. Right? You are more privileged than Jeremiah, than Isaiah, than Jonah. You are more privileged than the Old Testament prophets who received the direct revelation of God. Indeed, even the angels long to apprehend what Christ has done for us and what the triune God has revealed to us. The question, therefore, is what will you do with this treasure? Jesus tells us that it's a treasure that is to be shared. But the only way we're going to share it and the only way we're going to benefit from it is if we read it, we study it, we meditate upon it, we trust it, we put it into practice, and we proclaim it to the world. Jesus has given us this promise. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And our Lord Jesus Christ has told us these things because he wants you to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Amen.